the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Very Bold Radio and Podcast with your host, Steve Teal, bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. And now here's your host, Steve Teal. Steve Teal, Very Bold Radio and Podcast. Uh, Man, this is exciting. This is part two of our interview uh, six weeks later with Martin Bennett. He is the author of Wounded Tiger. When I got to interview Martin before, I had read um, just about a third of the book, or and I was excited to read more. Martin's basically said, hey, you got to finish this book, and we got to talk again. Basically. These are my words. These are my words. Uh, so, Martin, I just want to ask you, how are you doing today? I'm excited to talk more about Wounded Tiger and see what God is doing and share this incredible story and incredible just 18-year um, project that God has placed on your heart, and there's more moving forward. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. And, you know, I, I've never done this before, but I'd like to share some of the supernatural things that have happened on the on my side of this project. So in going through, you know, coming across this story, I really sense the Lord saying, Martin, get the film done, do it, get it done. And I thought, man, this is going to be difficult. I know very little about Japanese history and culture. So in putting together the story of Wounded Tiger, uh, I spent years in research. I, I self-published the book. Uh, a couple of editions, now we have an investor. Uh, I had four different uh, film groups that wanted to fund this $125 million film, and I turned them down because wow. I would have no creative control. I have no ability to protect the integrity of the story. And then Jesus turns to higher power, and they put in a sex scene, and I, have, I, I can't do that deal. So then the producer of Hacksaw Ridge contacted me about two years ago, and he said, Martin, listen, get the book to the top of the charts. That's when the investors will come to you. But it still takes money to do that. So in addition to this project, I've got maybe 20 other film projects in various stages of development. I completed a script on the life of John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. His life story is absolutely phenomenal, and I'm extremely committed to bring it to the screen. But I've been broke for a number of circumstances. I had a business partner that just went off the rails. I lost everything. I had to declare bankruptcy. And I asked the Lord, do you want me to just rebuild my life and get a job? He said, no, just focus on doing this project. I will take care of you. And I thought, well, all right. So it was very difficult. I mean, I worked minimum wage jobs. I slept on my son's couch and everything else. And then what happened, this is about three years ago. I'm at a home church and uh, I didn't know. I knew maybe a few people there. I didn't say a word during the service at all. It was just in a home. And this lady comes up to me and she says, Martin, the Lord keeps telling me to tell you something. Can I share it? I said, of course. And then after this morning Bible study home church, they had a potluck with all the food sitting out there. And she points to the stack of plastic cups, blue, red, green, and yellow. She said, the Lord keeps telling me you're like this set of cups. You have all these things you want to do and you can't do them. Is that true? I said, yeah, that's absolutely true. Mm. She said, the Lord wanted me to tell you he's going to fill them all up. Don't worry about it. 
And then she walked away. And I thought that was one of many different milestones I had that I knew the Lord was in this project. She then came back to me about 20 minutes later. And for the record, uh, my wife left the Lord, left me, um, mm. alcohol, adultery, you know, the mm. whole, it was awful. It was really awful. And so I'm on my own. I have no investors. I have nothing. And so, and I was, you know, I was, people would loan me money to just make ends meet or, or I would make, you know, royalties up of some books I'm selling. So he, she comes up to me a second time. She said, Martin, the Lord keeps telling me to share something else with you. Can I tell you? I said, of course. She said, you feel all alone, don't you? I said, yeah, of course I do. She said, well, the Lord wanted me to tell you he's with you. He's gone before you. He's gone behind you. Don't worry about it. And I received that. So then fast forward about a year after that, after I talked to this guy, uh, Gabe Vidella, producer of Hacksaw Ridge, and he was like the producer who made it all happen. Mm. And he'd been in the business for like 50 years. And he said, Martin, get that book to the top of the charts. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, you need money to do that. I have never had a single investor invest a penny in, at the time, 15 years. Nobody. And they said, well, why don't you go to a publisher? They'll publish the book. Why don't you go to a movie studio? They'll do that. I was like, no, it doesn't work that way. I lose creative control. So finally, not in desperation, but in faith, I said, listen, Lord, I like to pray specifically because you get a specific answer. Even if it's no, at least you know you got an answer. Yeah. So I said, Lord, this is what I'm asking you for. I want someone who's got, someone who loves this project and understands the story, someone who trusts me, someone who's got $2 million free and clear, to wire me the money, handshake only, no contract, and then I pay him whatever, whenever. That would be absolutely ideal for me. And three weeks later, that's exactly what happened. Stop I got a text it. message. I got a text message from somebody I knew, but he didn't have money, to my knowledge. I mean, he had like the red tape on his taillight. You know, his, he was like two doors <laughs> down from a halfway house. I'm not joking. This guy's smoking cigarettes for ex-drug addicts. I mean, he was not upper class. So I go out there. It was quite a, quite a drive. I met with him and his wife. And he said, Martin, we're going to wire you $2 million. I said, what happened? He said, well, we took our life savings of $40,000 and started investing it. It went from $40,000 to $10,000. And I'm thinking, this does not sound very good. <laughs> I remember asking his wife, I said, so what did you think of that? Taking their life savings of 40 grand and it turning into 10 grand. She said, I trust my husband. She just looked me straight in the eye. She said, I trust my husband. So fast forward, he just caught the wave and it just started multiplying. And he, he ended up with, I don't know, like five or six million dollars. So that's how he did it. So I'm sitting there in his living room, Steve. It's wow. December 6th. And I said, tomorrow is December 7th. Did you plan this? He said, no, it just worked out that way. I thought, wow, this is just this is just unbelievable. So then I asked him, I said, listen, you're an intelligent guy. How much of this was you just being smart, making smart decisions? While I'm talking, he just puts his hand up and says, Martin, I could never, ever do this again, ever. I could never do it. And I remember for like the next year, he lost so much money. He said, Martin, I'm, I'm like broke. I can't even pay the, the capital gains taxes on this. The IRS is after me. I said, if you want some of this money back, let me know. He goes, nope, nope, nope. That's yours. I'll figure this out. So that's the journey. I mean, so I am positive the Lord is in this project, both the book and the film. A positive is going to be done, not because I am, I trust myself, but because the Lord has made it clear, I'm going to make this happen, Martin. Those who put their trust in the Lord will never be disappointed. My trust is not in me. My trust is not in an investor or capital. My trust is in the Lord. So that's really the nuts and bolts of what's happening on my side of the story. 
And on the other side of the story, I've had so many people, many of whom are not religious in any way, shape, or form, read the book, and with tears streaming down their face, said, Martin, this story really impacted me deeply. I really feel like when I saw how much they loved each other and loved others, I need to be a better person. And I felt like that's a really good starting point. And I'm still in touch with this person I'm referring to, and we're good friends. So that's that's a little more of the, I don't know, the backside of the story that's quite interesting. And I want to be encouraging to other people because, you know, we all come to those places where you're in a desert and you feel like, what is happening? Why, why am I just doing nothing? I mean, David's running from cave to cave, running for his life. Joseph is in prison. He didn't do anything wrong. And you think, why is this happening? Well, that's where God refines you. That's where the Lord tests you and proves you. And that's where you gain wisdom that you're not going to get any other way. That's just how it works. Martin, where did this faith come from? I mean, and how has it been fortified over the years? Well, you know, I became a believer when I was 13. I went to a camp and they gave the gospel message. And I I said, yes, I definitely want to follow God. And I meant it. I have never looked back. I've had ups and downs, of course, like everybody else. But it seems like uh, every time something would happen, I'd be click up, the bar would be raised a few more clicks. And I had greater confidence. And then when I was in college, I remember meeting a woman who had a really dynamic relationship with the Lord. Like the Lord was speaking to her and leading her and guiding her. And I thought, man, that's amazing. How do you do that? You know, it's kind of like, I was just like, here's the rule book. Follow the rules. See you at the end. That's what I was taught as a kid. Here's the rule book. Follow the rules. I'll see you at the end. But she had a dynamic relationship that I'd not heard or met anybody quite like that. So I asked if I could eat lunch with her. We sat down together. She opened the Bible to Jeremiah. She said, Martin, I'd like you to read this out loud. And so I started reading the words that said, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. And as I read these words, I just began weeping uncontrollably. I just felt like the Lord had put a sword through my heart of, Martin, you're not serious. She's serious. That's why I work with her. And that's why I'm not working with you in the same way. But if you get serious with me, I will work with you. And I took that promise and I began seeking the Lord in a deeper and more authentic way. And the Lord has never let me down. So there's a lot of other things that happen. But each time I feel like the bar has just been raised another click. And, you know, it's line upon line, precept upon precept. I feel it's like bricks in a building or in a wall. Once you learn it, it's there in your life. And so you just keep building from there. So now I have a confidence in God that if he says, I want you to do this, I don't say, well, it looks like it's impossible. That's what he does. That's what he did with Gideon. That's what he did with Noah. That's what he does. So when he says, Martin, do a $125 million film as your first movie, I'm thinking, that sounds kind of crazy, but okay, I'm in. Yeah. I love it, man. That is tremendous, Martin. That is exciting. Um, and that is going to encourage somebody today because any, if somebody's listening, they're going through something. They may equate it to being in a wilderness. They may equate it to just being in some circumstance that just seems overwhelming, but God is going to speak to them through you today. Yeah. What's ironic is the best years of David's life was when he was living in caves barely trying to exist, you know, make a, you know, get enough food, protect himself, running for his life, being chased by a king who wanted to kill him and had the capacity to do it. Those were the best years of his life. Once he was in the palace and everything was great, those are the worst years of his life. That was destructive. So you should enjoy the the situation you're in and make the most of it because 
it may be a lot more beneficial than you think. I remember years ago, I was with a friend who knew a lot about horses. I knew almost nothing about horses. I didn't grow up around horses. We're looking at this field where the horses are in. It's got a lot of green grass, but then there was these chunks of thick, dark green grass that was like two feet tall scattered across the field. And this lady said, you know what the, those clumps of grass are? I thought it was a different kind of grass altogether. She said, that's where the horse manure is. I said, you're kidding me. So I jump over the fence and I go walk out there. And sure enough, that's where the grass was tall and dark and green. So when people say, Lord, I want to grow. The Lord says, you want to grow? He said, yes, I want to grow. He says, well, then I'm going to do the things that are going to help you grow. And the next thing that happens is horse manure is dropping on your head. And you're saying, what am I doing wrong? Why is this happening? And the Lord says, hang in there. You'll see this is how it works. Right. Oh, man, that's good. I want to ask you how... Uh parallel you feel to that life of David right now, cave to cave, but also want to get into the book. So maybe we can come back to that because I yes. know we have some limited time. Yeah, and, uh, I definitely want to get into the book. It's so on, on, on the story of David and myself. Yeah. I mean, I had a business partner, went AWOL. I lost everything. I lost my house. I had to declare bankruptcy. I lived in people's houses. I lived on my son's couch in a tiny apartment with three other people for a year. Mm. And it was, it was crazy, but it was beautiful because I, the Lord was there and everything worked out. But as far as the book itself, as I researched and as I studied the story of Wounded Tiger that involves Mitsuo Fuchida, handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto to lead the attack, hated God, hated you know Americans, was driven by selfish ambition and destroyed his own country by his deeds. And after the war, he was extraordinarily despondent. And that's where the Lord started to show him the way to peace with him. Uh, and then there's another guy named Jake DeShazer. He was an American who joined the army. And then after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he just wanted revenge and to kill Japanese. So he volunteered on a mission, goes to Japan, bombs Japan, but his plane runs out of fuel, bails out over occupied China, gets captured by the Japanese, is put in solitary confinement, tortured, uh, deprivation, darkness. It was just hell on earth. One of his buddies died of exposure. Three of them were shot. It was just hell on earth. And he said in his own words, he was crazy with hatred toward the Japanese. And he came to the conclusion, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live this way. And that's where the Lord started. One step at a time, little pinhole of light started showing the pathway to become a man of love. And that's exactly what happened. And then you have the Covell family who loved the Japanese people. They were teachers, highly educated, and they loved the poorest of the poor. They went out helping people. People would line up out front of their, their house in the morning to get meal tickets because they were that poor. Anyway, they fled from the from Japan when the country ramped up for war. They went to the Philippines as teachers. Then they sent their kids back to the United States. So you got three plot lines which have essentially nothing to do with each other, that slowly come together in a way that's so unbelievable. If this were fiction, you'd say this is a bad story because it's just <laughs> impossible. But since it's true, it's, got, it's just like, you got to be kidding me. I remember a guy telling me his, mom, his wife bought the book at 7, brought it home, started reading at 7.30 at night. At 2 o'clock in the morning, she's elbowing him in bed. You're not going to believe this. I cannot believe this. I mean, she read the whole book in one sitting. Wow, that's amazing. That is incredible. All right, you have done, as I've told you before in our first interview, just an incredible job with all your research. I want to ask you, like, how did you immerse yourself as I'm reading these stories? I'm like, how much does he have to kind of imagine 
their hearts, their minds, and how much is this from just what you've researched and discovered? And so it just leads to different questions. Well, it was, in fact, extraordinarily difficult because Japanese culture is extremely different. It's as different of American culture as the East is from the West, literally. Mm. So I really had to dig down, and then I had to recreate conversations that Fuchita would have had. And I was pretty scared about that because I thought, I don't speak Japanese, I don't know the history and culture, but I read a lot, I studied a lot, and eventually uh, the book was given to Fuchita's daughter, Miyako Fuchita, Mm. and I I didn't hear back for several months, and I was really kind of concerned because she said, Martin, you've got this all wrong. I would be, I wouldn't know what to do because I've done everything I knew to make this thing right. right. And she said, Martin, I could feel my father's spirit as I read the book. This is absolutely fantastic. She loved it. She sent us like five pages of handwritten notes and she has since critiqued the, the newest version as well. So she's all on board. So that really was, gave me a sigh of relief. But I'm a researcher. I enjoy researching. I'm the kid in class who keeps asking questions that the teacher gets annoyed at. Okay, Martin, <laughs> stop asking me questions. Actually, the first job I had, Steve, this is true. Yeah. First job I had, I worked there for a week. I loved it. And then the boss calls me in. He says, Martin, we're going to have to let you go. And I was absolutely shocked. I said, what am I doing wrong? He said, Martin, you asked too many questions. That's the problem. I, you figured out my business. I can't have you start a business across town and compete with me. Now, I was 16 at the time. It never crossed my mind to compete with his business, but... I did figure out his business. He had a bunch of trade secrets and I could open his business tomorrow because I figured the whole thing out. So I asked lots of questions almost to the point of annoying people. And it's happened many times where people say, Martin, stop asking me questions, but it works for good because that's part of my gifts and callings, because then I can figure out what exactly happened here in this story of Puchita, DeShazer and the Covells, and then put it together in a way that's understandable. And I've had people say, Martin, I've read a lot of books. This is the best book I've read in my life. Look at Amazon right now. There's a number of them that are saying this may be the most extraordinary book I've read in my life. And I've heard this many, many times over and over. So this is not my story. This is God's story. That's what makes it so amazing. But I did my best to make it as engaging and compelling as possible. Well, you did it. You absolutely crushed it. And uh, I love the way God uses your gifts. Um, I just, I can't even imagine another book that takes something that's historical and yet personal and narrative and, I mean, reads like a novel because it is, but it's, you know, historically incredibly accurate. Um, and then uh, in addition, I know we talked about this in part one of our, our interview, but other people are just catching this for the first time. Um, just all the pictures and all the, I mean, how many, 300 different photos is from maps and personal letters and course. Yeah, over 300 photos, maps, images, letters, some of which have never been printed before. One of the best ones yeah. is a copy of the uh, telegraph message that was written down on Fuchita's ship that has the words Torah, Torah, Torah on it. That was the code word, tiger, 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 that they achieved complete surprise. Even though I've been working on this for over a decade, I had never heard that. I never saw it in a book. I didn't even know it existed because all these ships eventually sank. And I thought, you know, it's just a piece of paper. But it ended up in a museum in Japan that's part of a Shinto shrine, and they were very hesitant to let us have permission. But when they realized it was not an anti-Japanese book, they gave me permission. And to far, as far as I know, we're the only ones who've ever gotten permission to put that Torah, Torah, Torah telegraph message in print. 
Wow, that's incredible. All right, give me an example of how you've uh, immersed yourself in one of these three characters or people's lives. Like, give us an example of some of that research. I, and I, I have one thing in mind that I've wanted to ask you, and but uh, I can come back to that if you give me your answer yeah. first. Yeah, so my answer is, as a writer, I had to descend into this world, whatever the year was, 1943, whatever, and just live in that world before I could write. And I would only write when I'm at my peak of just being sharp and I've got the whole thing before me. And I collected many, many, many books on all the different elements that revolved around the story. So for the Covells, they lived in an island in the Philippines, which was called Panay, P-A-N-A-Y. And I found other books about people in the same island under the same conditions. I took all this material. And then uh, if you've ever seen a car on fire, do you remember it, Steve? You ever seen a car like engulfed in flames? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You remember that. You've probably seen a lot of white cars in the last month, but you don't remember it. So me, when I could see the scene in my mind, then I would just write it out as if I was witnessing it happen, and I would just describe it, and that's what I did. It was very easy for me to do, quite honestly, but I had to collate a lot of information to flesh out what this scene actually looked at, like, very, very specifically. And once I could see it, I had confidence I can tell this story. Okay, so you're taking all sorts of different research. It's interesting that you talk about that because that was the question that I had in mind was just thinking, and there's a very key scene in the book. There's so many key scenes and no spoilers, but I was thinking about, uh, I believe it's called Hopeville. Is that right? Hopeville, yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and... I was just wondering, man, how did he get that information? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So in the hardcover book, I put a section in the back of the book without giving anything away on this show here. Yeah, yeah. It says, how do we know what happened in Hopevale? And it's two pages and an explanation. I'd be happy to send you a copy of the book if you send us our address because it's in the hardcover book, but it's not in the advanced copy that's paperback. Did you get the? Do you have the paperback and the hardcover? No, I have the paperback. Yeah. Yeah. So that does copy. not have it. The hardcover does have it. And I'd be happy to give it to you. I don't want to give anything away on on the show here because that's the fun of discovery of going through the journey in the book. So you give me your address, I'll send you a hardcover book, okay? Yeah, you don't need to do that. I can order one, uh, no problem. I just ordered one today I'm going to give as a Christmas gift, and I don't want to ruin the creases in the pages by looking at it. I'll get another one, no problem. And then I'm going right. to want an autograph someday uh, from you, Martin. Um, Where do you live, Steve? Live in New Braunfels, Texas, between San Antonio and Austin. Well, I'm going to be in Dallas this week. Are you, what are you doing? In- <laughs> not, not as far as I know. Not this week. There was a chance. Uh, you know, we're pretty big into football, and a friend of mine, uh, if they had won one more game, he's a coach. They would have been playing at uh, AT and T Cowboy Stadium for a state championship, and I would have been there Friday in Dallas. But uh, I don't think I am. What are you doing up in Dallas? What's going on? I'm interviewing with Kirby Anderson. Okay, great. In person. Yeah. Great. Awesome. That is that is really exciting. Um, I'll get your autograph another time. I, I I've got a feeling I'll get that chance. So um well talk to me about uh just immersing yourself in, in one of these other three characters' lives. And one of the questions I saw that I want to ask is of those three characters, which one do you connect with the most? 
Well, first of all, I honestly do not connect with any one of them the most. I okay. connect with all of them. I'm the author, of course. But yeah. to be extremely honest, and I don't say this very often, when I'm going through just to edit the book or check things even recently and I start reading it, it brings tears to my eyes. I mean, I'm moved by this story like, golly, this is just unbelievable. I'm not impressed with my own writing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying things that happen were like, this is just an absolutely awesome, amazing story of what happened in these people's lives. But as far as to immerse myself in the story, Jake DeShazer was a bombardier in a B-25 bomber. Well, I've never been in a B-25 bomber. I don't know what that was like. I didn't have much money at the time. I, I thought I cannot fly out to one of these air shows, but I really wanted to. So sure enough, there was a, a newspaper that said they're having an air show at our local airport. It was a small airport and there was a B-25 bomber. I think I am going to get on that plane. So I bought a ticket to get on the plane. Of course, they have this disclaimer thing that you got to sign. This is an old plane. They crashed. You could die. It's not our fault. Blah, blah, blah. Right. I, thought, I didn't care. I got on this plane and it was the first thing that was amazing was it was unbelievably loud. There's two 16 cylinder en engines with no mufflers literally inches away from you in this plane. Oh no gosh. mufflers. They yeah. gave you hearing protection. And yeah. then I, I, to get to the nose of this plane, I had to shimmy on my belly through a rectangular tube to get to the front where the nose was, where Jake DeShazer sat. Once I sat there and I could see, you know, it was so small, too. I could reach out my, my hands and I could touch the, the sides at the same time. I thought, okay, now I understand what it was like. And it helped me understand how to tell his story accurately by being in that plane. Yeah. Wow. That is really awesome. That is really cool. Well, talk to me. Let me shift a little bit in the last few minutes we have. Um, and, and I want to say, cause I haven't bragged on, I, I bragged on what I'd read the first time. And I just do want to make sure I say for people that are just catching our, our interview is to them. It's part one with uh, Martin Bennett, author of wounded tiger, um, incredible story. And I did get to read it and, uh, as you come to the culmination and the climax of these three people's stories, I mean, absolutely just in, uh, wonderful tears, you know, I'm, as I'm reading it, it's, um, it's just beautiful. It's just, you get, so why to, don't you see, would yeah. you do me a favor? Tell me one scene that did move you emotionally and why. All right. Here he is asking questions. Um, well, and I'll, I'll, I'll want to be careful, so you might have to stop me. Yeah, we don't want to have a giveaway, but you can set right. up the scene without giving right. away the scene. Yeah. I think uh, any of the three main characters, um, so I will I will talk about uh, Fushida. And um, when he goes down to the harbor or the dock and um, he meets somebody that's coming back. Yeah, his and, old engineer. Yeah, you you can tell, and I can add without adding. But yeah, uh, um, yeah, and and I'll say what I say without spoilers, and then you can you can add on. But um, for him to talk and ask about his prisoner of war experience over in America, right? Uh, that that's uh, um, and then just for the for the prisoner of war in America to talk about how he experienced kindness and grace, um. Man, it was it was just beautiful. So that that comes yeah. to my mind. Yeah, yeah go so ahead. that part of the story where he explains what happened in Hopevale, I've had many people say that was the most impactful scene in the whole story. And I had even a non-Christian guy said that story really got him and that part. But it 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 really shows 
without giving anything away, how dedicated they were to serving God and how they could face persecution and still love their enemies. And that's that's a beautiful thing. Right. Yeah. Everything about it. Um, everything about it. So, um, and all at the end, the last, uh, you know, I'd say about 150 pages, including, um, Jake's, you know, redemptive beginning of his redemption process. And in my copy, I've got that down as about page 410. Um, everything, just all the little details of God weaving, <laughs> weaving these lives together of forgiveness of redemption, of, you know, letting go of hatred and forgiving it. It was very powerful and a powerful reminder for me of just the forgiveness that God has for me. And so I get the honor and privilege to to give it to others. So we didn't pray for that cold off air, but man, you're good at muting that mic. Yeah, uh, I hit it. So talk to me, and I know we're a little short on time. I think uh, according to my watch, maybe three, four minutes. Did I mention yeah. about the title, Wounded Tiger? Did we go over that or not? We did a little bit in the first one, but you're welcome to talk about it again. I know there's different people listening, or they may be like, now what was he talking about? But if you want to talk about that or just the issue, I got it, of – uh just forgiveness and how that's, you know, applied in your own life or how you've been inspired by this story to forgive or anything like that, either one. Well, on the latter one, this world has been full of war and killing and death for the dawn, since the dawn of mankind. And even it's happening today, but no one has any answers or solutions. What you see in Wounded Tiger is a demonstration of the man who hated America, led the Pearl Harbor attack, and a man named Jake DeShazer, who hated the Japanese and just wanted to kill Japanese, both of whom whose lives were completely transformed to the point that DeShazer's, excuse me, uh, DeShazer spent most of his life living in Japan, and Fuchida spent most of his time living in the United States, wow. and both his kids became U.S. citizens. How does this happen? It's quite fascinating, and it brings hope to any situation. And so in the sense that the world has no answers, God does have an answer, and that you'll see in Wounded Tiger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another another scene, and again, the last like 200 pages just of, wow, watching God weave it all together and the forgiveness. You know, uh, there's a young lady who goes to hear DeShazer talk in Japan, and she has, you know, ill intent and is transformed by the gospel. I mean, there's just so many things. And of course, and that is 100% true. That's well documented. And in the back of the book, you'll see a picture right. of Jake DeShazer with this woman. Because when you hear these stories, they seem like, how could this even be? This, this just seems so far out. And uh, her story is threaded through the whole book. And once you get to that payoff scene where she's there specifically to kill Jake DeShazer, she had no, she didn't care what happened to her. She just wanted revenge for the death of her husband, her fiance. Yeah. And then an, another one, I mean, and like I said, the last 150, 200 pages are just kind of payoff after payoff after payoff. You know, it's just completely satisfying, like, wow, unbelievable in the best sense of the word. Um, amazing how Fushida's life, Fuchida's life is uh, saved, preserved many times over. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so he was in, he was in for the listeners. He was in Hiroshima on a military uh, conference to prepare for the ultimate invasion of Japan. He gets a phone call. He then goes to an airbase. The next day, 
The bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. His hotel was vaporized. Everybody he was with are dead. 90,000 people are dead. He then comes back the very next day. He spends three days walking around in radioactive rubble. A month later, most of the people on his team were dying of radiation sickness. He didn't suffer any consequences whatsoever. And these things started to, uh, you know, started to compound themselves upon his mind and say, why am I not dead? What is happening here? And then he comes across Jake DeShazer's story. Then he com- comes across Peggy Covell's story. And then he goes on this trek to find out why would anyone love their enemies? Shouldn't we kill our enemies? He's always taught, been taught to take revenge on your enemies. We don't love our enemies. And he asks the question, where does this love come from? That's a really good question. When you seek truth and you're honest about it, you'll find it. And that's what happened to Fujita. That's right. Last comment, and then I'll close. Peggy Covell, um, also just very touching her humble spirit at the end when there's a newspaper article that she's handed and she seems to just handle it with complete humility. And, uh, yeah, is that true story too, or was that a little bit of, uh, that's artistic license, but we know that she did not do any interviews, radio, newspaper, nothing. And I was contacted by someone who was her next door neighbor and said, she never talked about it, but one day they were in the backyard talking. She told her the whole story, and she said, my jaw dropped when Peggy told me her story. But she was a very private person, and so that, that part at the end was just to illustrate that she never publicized herself. I mean, today, you know, they put her on some kind of a talking tour. She didn't do that at all. She was a very humble person. It's really striking at how humble she was. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I just want to say again, this book, Wounded Tiger, is awesome. What a great time to get a Christmas gift for somebody, anybody, a Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Um, it is fantastic. Um, the last 200 pages just filled with tearful joys and just amazement at God's goodness. And then that transforming goodness. Who can I forgive? How can I show mercy? How can I show kindness? Martin, you've just done an incredible job. The website woundedtiger.com. Is that correct? Yes, you can read the first chapters free, so don't take my word for it. I'm the author. Who do, You can't trust hey, me. Take my word for it. They can trust <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, take Steve's word for it, but you can read the first chapters free at WoundedTiger.com and see what you think. Yeah, go ahead and get the book. Go ahead and get the book. Um, can they buy the book on your website, or do they just go to Amazon? It's If you go to our website and you click the link, it takes you to Amazon. So all the books are okay. being sold at Amazon. Okay, got it, got it. That's where I got my copy. Except the bookstores. Sure. Bookstores can buy the book. And get wholesale from the website. Just click on bookstores. Okay, awesome. Well, Martin, it's uh, just a treat to talk again and a blessing. And I just want to encourage you. This is an incredible story you've told. So, man, just uh, excited to to see what God does with all of it. Thanks very much. Yeah, appreciate you all. Thank you. Yeah, great being with you, Steve. Yeah, great being with you, Martin. Very Bold Radio and Podcast with your host, Steve Teal. Bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.